This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is Buzz Tarlow. Welcome to Construction Law Today. This is a brand new project of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Over the course of our next several podcasts, I'll be interviewing a number of prominent practitioners in the area of construction law. We welcome your comments and questions about the podcast. Please let us know if you like it, if you find it useful, or any other thoughts you have on how we can improve the podcast. The contact information for Construction Law Today is provided at the end of this podcast. Welcome and thanks for listening. Welcome to the podcast. Our episode today explores the use of expert witnesses in construction litigation. We have two terrific guests with us, Alex Dockery, an attorney with the Goulston Stores Law Firm, and Chris Sullivan from FTI Consulting. Both are from the Boston area. Welcome, Alex, and welcome, Chris. Alex, let's start with you. Would you tell our listeners a little bit about your professional practice? Thanks, Buzz. I'm happy to be here. I am an attorney focused on all aspects of the construction practice. I do litigation, arbitration, claims, and contract negotiation. As you mentioned, I just recently joined Goulston and Stores. Before that, I worked for several years at a mid-sized construction practice here in Boston after five years of practice in California. Chris, great to have you on the program today. What's your background in the world of construction litigation? Yeah, thanks, Buzz, for having both of us. I work at FTI Consulting, as you mentioned. Prior to joining FTI, I worked for two larger general contractors in the Boston area working around the country, and then moved over to the owner's side to work in the capital facilities group for Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. And since then, joined FTI. I've been here about six years or so, working, um, doing delay and damages, expert work, and managing construction claims for attorneys and clients all around the country. Chris, I think when we first met, you told me that you've worked together with Alex on previous cases. Is that right? Yes and no. Our firms have crossed paths for sure, working on some major uh, cases, namely with Alex's older, old firm. Uh, since a recent move. So we've never had the opportunity to work together. We just know each other through company of, of our previous, uh, of her previous employers and my current employer. So we're, um, we're getting to know each other a little more today, for sure. You um, will get to know each other during the course of our podcast. Thanks to you both for appearing with us. Alex, let's start with you. And let's start kind of from the beginning. Basic question. When do you find yourself starting to think about the use of an expert in a construction litigation matter that you're handling? So for me, I'm considering the use of an expert right from the outset. I don't always recommend that an expert be retained at that point in time, but because of the nature of construction claims, and and it may be the case that we've already had a consulting expert on hand dealing with the pre-litigation claims process, if that's something I've been handling. But it's really important to think about the technical nature of the claims at issue when you're putting together your complaint or considering responding to a complaint. And so I'm thinking about the potential experts you might need from the very outset of a matter. So once you've made the decision that you're going to get an expert, 
involved. What's some of the initial criteria that you're applying? So for me, I'm really looking for someone with expertise and a good reputation. And so I want to know who has an expert worked for, what is their educational background, and, um, you know, what is their reputation in the field? And not just amongst lawyers, but amongst people who are in the area where I would want that expert to be providing an opinion. Chris, let's talk a little bit about that from the expert's perspective. How do you let lawyers like Alex out there in the construction litigation world know about what you do and what your skills are? Yeah, sure. I mean, a lot of times an expert starts and ends with a resume on paper. And so the the recommendation I give to people with whom I work is make sure your resume is current, make sure it is specific and provides all the information that someone like Alex would need if they're making a decision on what expert to use in a case. Especially nowadays where projects, there tends to be more very specific projects going on that uh, attorneys are looking for very specific qualities in an expert. Um, You wanna make sure your resume has very detailed um, instances of work you've done, project you've done, so they can see your experience and make a decision on your qualifications fairly easily. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, relationship between the law firm and the organization that provides the expert. Chris, based on your experience, what do you think makes for a good relationship between the lawyer and the expert witness? Many things, but one that immediately comes to mind is is good communication between an attorney and an expert. Um, I'll focus on, uh, to your point earlier, Buzz, when you first get involved with a case. Experts um, love to hear specific instructions um, from attorneys. You know, in in my experience, experts, especially good experts, want to stay inside a box that they are comfortable with and don't want to get outside that box in terms of opinion and budget and other things uh, to that nature. And so the, the better communicated the instructions are, what your expectations from an attorney to an expert at the beginning of the case, really start you off on the right foot and make sure everybody's marching to the same tune. Alex, let me ask you a little harder question relating to what Chris just said. Sometimes when I sit down with an expert witness, I'm so focused on what I want them to say that in my role as a lawyer, sometimes I'm not listening to what they're trying to tell me. Can you comment on that? You know, I think that there's sort of an inherent tension between our role as the advocate and the independence of the expert. You know, one of the things you're looking for when you retain an expert is someone who is respected. And the way experts get that respect is that they provide opinions that are supportable and backed up by whatever their expertise is. And part of that is sometimes providing opinions that don't coincide with what the advocate who has retained them wants to hear. And so it's really important as an advocate to listen with an open mind about the places where our case might not, the facts of the case we have, might not lead to a respectable expert providing the opinion we're hoping to hear. You have to be open to hearing where there are soft spots in your case as an advocate in order to work well with an expert. Chris, I'd like to hear from the expert's perspective a thought or two on that, on that point. Sure. There's always the, uh, the tension, as Alex put it, between the advocation and, and the facts, I'll call it. And as an expert, 
Um, you know, the term Alex has used in the past is, you know, in it to win it with an expert and, and things to that nature. Um, and, and we walk a fine line as an expert with that for sure. And what I try to tell clients and attorneys is that when we get into a construction case, especially there's so many facts involved that allow your expert to follow those facts, interpret those facts, use them and let them tell you what their understanding of that is and see how it shapes a case in the positions or the advocation that the attorney is taking. And I think if an expert, a good expert is allowed to follow those facts and, and use their expertise to look at those facts, a lot of the times you'll get to the place an attorney wants to be in a case because they're, they're good facts for their client. And, and the opposite of that is when there's bad facts for a client, listen to your expert. And it will help you round out a case. It will help the parties narrow their focus in a dispute. Um, so that's where that push and pull comes, in, in, um, comes into play. And it's really just, again, back to the communication up to that aspect between the attorney and the expert. Well, let's assume now, Alex, you've hired Chris and you're ready to proceed with the case. Now, let, let me add this from a personal perspective. One of the things that I find most challenging with experts are issues of timeliness, especially, let's say you're litigating a case in federal court with a detailed schedule or, uh, scheduling order and a judge who has the reputation of sticking to dates. How do you start talking to an expert about what they need to see and when they need to get their work back to you so that you can meet schedules in, in any number of uh, different courts in front of uh, lots of different judges? You know, I think the expectations about timeliness and about turnaround should be something that are set out from the very beginning of the engagement. And I just think that everything about the relationship between the attorney and the expert and the client is about open communication and candor with expectations. So if you have a judge who is a stickler for timeliness, and you as the attorney know that you're going to need a week to digest a report, you need to go to your expert and give them a deadline and make it clear that this is the real deadline. If you have an expert who perhaps you've worked with in the past and you know that sometimes deadlines tend to slip, you can provide a deadline that's three days earlier than you would absolutely need it in order to do your review. But at the end of the day, you really want to have an open communication with your expert. You want to lay out what the timeframes are, what the expectations are, and you want your expert to have the opportunity to tell you whether or not that's realistic, given the volume of information to review and the work product you're looking to get from that expert. Chris, how do expert witnesses help lawyers sleep at night about meeting sometimes these, these difficult deadlines? Sure. I, I you know, I, I think one of the best qualities of a good expert is being able to meet deadlines. I think all experts should and should strive for that. I know sometimes things creep in that um, you can't help, but what, what we're trying to do as experts is to do that. I've had attorneys use that same phrase, you help me sleep at night. And to do that, you know, we're trying to help you identify what are the key things in the case to try to keep things on track. So a lot of times we understand, especially with, with the first line of defense with clients being the attorneys, that they are, they are told a lot of things, they're pushed a lot of paper and ideas, and we're there to help focus that to, um, if things start to go off the rails a little bit, bring it back to focus. That's what I try to do with my, with my clients 
and get to the get the larger issues narrowed down so that we're not focusing on things in a tight deadline that maybe aren't you know substantive to the case so that's one thing is the focus for sure we'll be back with more construction law today in just a moment Welcome back to Construction Law Today. We're talking with Alex Dockery from the Goulston Stores Law Firm in Boston, Massachusetts, and Chris Sullivan from FDI Consulting, also in Boston, about issues regarding the use of experts in construction litigation. Alex, let me turn to you on the question of fees for experts. Experts are expensive. Lawyers know that. Sometimes clients don't know that. How do you start dealing with the expert and with your client about how much is it going to cost? I'm a big believer in you get what you pay for. And so I think this goes back to when you're vetting your expert options and you're looking at reputation and you're looking at experience. One of the ways that you can bring your client on board is by showing them the value that a given expert is bringing for the fees that the client is ultimately going to be paying. The other thing that's really important is to make sure that you have a budget from your expert and also that that budget reflects the scope of work you're hoping that they'll do. That way your client can get comfortable with the numbers, can understand what they're going to get for the fees that they're paying. And it's a way to sort of keep everyone on track with where we're headed with the litigation and the work product that's expected. Chris, I'm interested in your perspective as an expert. How do you talk about uh, fees with potential clients? Yeah, I, I might be the exception to the rule, but I like having a budget from a client because it sets an expectation. And a lot of times you can relate the amount of work you can do and the opinions that you can come to and the amount of documents you can look to, to money. You can make that link. So I like having it. I think the earlier that conversation happens with an attorney in the process, the better, especially when you can qualify that with here's what we're doing, here's our work plan. I think that needs to go along with that as well. The request I often make to attorneys is understanding that, not that it's a moving target, but that things change as litigation goes on. For instance, if a mediation is scheduled, they might want the expert to come in and assist with that. If that wasn't your initial work plan, there needs to be understanding there'll be additional fees for something like that. Um, and the other piece of it is that uh, in my experience with, you know, as I think a pretty good expert, what tends to happen in cases is that attorneys rely on their experts more than they think as the process goes on through deposition prep and witness prep. And all those things need to be lined out as additional tasks and the understanding and track that back to an initial budget to make sure that everyone, everybody understands what's new work versus what was planned from the beginning. Chris, I am interested from your perspective about not only talking to the attorney who hires you about fees, but how about to the client themselves? The client oftentimes has trouble with experts, especially in construction, because they are experts at what they do, which is building a building or a facility or whatever their projects are. Um, so I think they have a tough time 
uh, understanding that we need to hire somebody to be an expert when many companies, what you know, especially the larger general contractors and owners in the country are the best at what they do. Um, so what we tried to help them understand is two things. Number one is that the other side is probably going to have an expert, so you might need one too to refute any bullet points they're going to have in their case. That's just the, you know, the way of the land at this point. And the second thing is, is that litigation gets very complicated and a lot, and a lot of times gets very extended. And so what we try to say to people is the cost is there to allow you go to do what you're good at, which is build projects and not get bogged down in litigation, um, which tends to happen with a lot of, with a lot of project people during, you know, a one or two year litigation. And I think it is true. And sometimes clients underestimate the amount of time and energy to get their people prepared as witnesses. I think that makes sense. Alex, let's talk about uh, the Daubert standard just for a minute. You don't see it, I don't think, in construction litigation as often as you may see in other kinds of uh, litigation, but how often do you find yourself um, having to show the judge that it's a matter of technical or scientific expertise and that your witness is sufficiently qualified? I've been fortunate with respect to my construction litigation matters. Often they are so technical that there is little question as to the nature of the expertise at issue. And it's very rare that my experts have been challenged, but it does happen. And often what I think is the best example, which may seem a little funny, is when you think about my cousin Vinny, and you think about the qualification of a young woman in that film as a, an expert in automotive. And when I was a junior attorney, the senior attorney that I worked for held that out to me as an example of how experts don't necessarily have to be experts with an MIT degree or um, a prestigious amount of publication. Really what you're looking for is someone with a heightened level of knowledge who can express based on their background and experience what the issues are in a way that the judge and the jury can understand. And I think that it's just important to remember that what you're looking for is someone who can really speak to what the issues are in your case. And that may be someone with a great academic background, but it may also just be someone with years of experience in the, in the field and in the trades. And when we're talking about construction, sometimes what you're looking for is someone who has done drywall for 35 years and perhaps doesn't even have a college education, but can speak to the specific issues at issue in your case. Well, I'm, I'm smiling as you tell that famous scene of Marissa Tomei in um, My Cousin Vinny. I teach at the engineering college at Montana State University. I just showed that to an engineering class to explain to them about qualification of uh, witnesses. I think in many ways that movie makes better points about the litigation process than almost any resource. Well, let's move a little bit along through that process. And Alex, let's talk about getting an expert like Chris ready for his or her deposition. Sure. I think, you know, you have to remember that a deposition is fact-finding mission for the other side. And it's also something that you have to be prepared is going to rear its head again later in the litigation. And so you want to make sure that you sit down with your expert and 
understand how many times they've been deposed before. Some experts will be experienced in litigation and testifying, but many experts will not. And so experts are human. You want to get them comfortable and prepared with what they can expect. And you also want to run through with them uh, the questions that they uh, may be called upon to answer. So that's going to be everything from their educational background, the materials that they reviewed in coming to an opinion. And you also want to be prepared or have them be prepared that they're probably going to be asked about their conversations with you as the attorney. And you want to be familiar with what aspects of those communications are fair game and which are not. And that's going to depend on the engagement of the expert. If they're being deposed, it's likely that they've been designated as a testifying expert. And so those communications are going to be more fair game in that instance than if they were a consulting expert. But you just want to make sure that they are prepared with any prior publications that they have written that might have opinions that are different from the opinion that they've issued in your matter questions about their educational background, and basically anything that they use to form their opinions in the present case. Well, Chris, I'm going to give you this podcast as a platform to speak to all those lawyers out there. How do you want to get prepared for your deposition? Yeah, I think that a strong deposition as an expert starts with a strong report. So I, you know, that's really the basis. As long as you're comfortable with what's in your report, you're not stretching yourself out too far, you're staying inside that box that I talked about earlier, then really all your deposition should be is a recitation of what you've learned throughout the case and what your opinions are that are in your report. So in terms of prep for deposition, you know, myself and other experts, we like to go over the big points, you know, making sure that we're understanding that where our opinions align with the case in general. But more so, we like just to get into our reports and give, get a little space and help us to refresh everything we might have done five, six months ago. Um, so there's definitely a fine line between prep with an attorney and prep sitting in your hotel room or wherever you might be. Um, so I think a lot of that work of call it deposition prep starts way back when you're writing your report, making sure you're getting the right documents and everything's being shared with you so that when you sit down in, in the hot seat, it, you're just talking about things you've been working on for five, six months or a year. Then. Well, let's move ahead and let's pretend that our case that we're talking about today, unlike many, actually ends up in the courthouse in trial. Chris, you're going to give your direct testimony now. What are you going to tell Alex in advance of going in about how you want that questioning to be delivered so that you can get across to the jury the answers that you think are important to the client's case? Yeah, I think they're a good prep session, especially written down with an outline. People have differing, differing ideas on how detailed that outline should be in terms of, is it you going to read a script or are you going to let it be more of a, you know, a flowing narrative that the expert gets to tell? You know, I think the advice that's given to most attorneys that I completely agree with when it comes to experts is that when it's direct testimony, that spotlight should be on the expert. And if it's a good expert, they'll really glow in that spotlight. And so the questions should be sharp, they should be pointed, they should be on a timeline or whatever the concept is that so the expert really has some time to sit there and show that expertise to a judge or an arbitration panel or a jury. Alex, now your turn. What are you going to tell Chris about his cross-examination? So, you know, as with any witness, experts uh, in some ways are no different than your fact witnesses. You want your expert to be prepared to listen to the question, 
to only answer the question that's being asked unless there's a real opportunity. And this is where I think an expert differs from a fact witness. If there's a real opportunity for the expert to take an opening that's presented by an inartful cross-examination question and really hit home a point that is discussed in the report or that I have discussed with Chris um, is really central to the case, to listen to those questions and look for those opportunities to restate something that's really essential to the case. In general, just like with any witness, I want my expert to listen to the questions that are asked to answer them thoughtfully, carefully, and within the confines of the question on cross-examination. Chris, you've been an expert for a reasonable amount of time. What's the best advice that a lawyer ever gave you before you were cross-examined? The best advice is to make sure you listen to the question. I mean, that to me, what you, your mind is spinning so fast and you're thinking what might be asked, you know, what have I written down, what, you know, what's in my report, that a lot of times people forget to just sit and listen and take a moment and then respond because as, as there's probably 50 examples you could give about asking one question of a bunch of different ways and inflections and, and good lawyers are very good at that. So best advice is to listen to the question and, uh, and I guess the, the counter advice to an attorney would be ask really good direct comp but complicated questions to experts to try to make sure they're not thinking about what you're asking. So it, it cuts both ways for sure. I will add that in my experience, the best advice you can give to a witness on cross-examination when they're appearing as an expert is very much in line with what you say, with this one addition, that it's okay to say, I don't know. Because it seems to me when experts are sitting there in a big federal courthouse with a jury and a lot of people, and they get asked a question, they think because they're being asked it, they better know the answer. And I have seen some experts get themselves in trouble when they could have just said that was outside of the scope of my work or I don't know. So that, that, that's what I've learned. Alex, let's talk a little bit about some of the, um, the newer trends or, or more innovative techniques about using experts. One is the experts in the hot tub. And I understand you have some international arbitration experience. You want to talk a little bit about that technique? Sure. So in my experience, in international arbitration specifically, although I think this approach of hot tubbing the experts is spreading to other forums as well. Um, the idea is that the opposing experts are both available for questions and answers at the same time. And in that way, the questioner, which is often in an arbitration setting, the actual panel, um, as opposed to the opposing attorneys, has the opportunity to pose a question to both experts and to try to drill down on the differences or nuances between their opinions and try to get them to provide. It's, it's a way to resolve some of the issues and to find out where there are areas of agreement and where there are true areas of disagreement with respect to the key issues in the case as opposed to having them go in turn, it's a live opportunity for the experts to almost hold a discussion and be presented with the questions at the same time and resolve any differences or inconsistencies in those answers in real time. I can tell you in my experience as an arbitrator, it is often, not always, but often easier to take the testimony if you can hear both perspectives at once. Chris, we were talking before we sat down to do the podcast, a little bit about this idea of expert-only meetings. 
which I know has been explored in more than a few cases now. Have you had an opportunity to sit down with the other side's expert with no lawyers and no clients to either help frame the issues or see if, in fact, you might agree on some of the concepts? Specifically, no. I've never sat down with an opposing expert, so to speak. We, we've done um, exercises where we've exchanged memos, so to speak, about um, here's, here's some things we think after reading your report we agree on. Can, and we would respond, and ultimately you would come to a list of here's the 10 or 12 things both experts agree on and can be put to the side. Um, I do think there's been, in some of the recent arbitrations I've been in, there's been a real focus um, and, and frankly, an annoyance uh, for, by the arbitration panels of experts who are arguing about things that the arbitrators do not think is important. Um, so I think there's, there's, a, there's a necessary step that, it's, that arbitration especially seems to be missing of some guidance or working together between the parties to say, let's narrow our focus, see where the arbitrators are really focusing on to make sure we're not adding all this superfluous information that just turns into a time waste. So um, while I haven't done it specifically in person, we've talked about that, we've done it in memos, and I think it's gonna become something that, that uh, alike gets shown on and continues to pop up in the industry for sure. Alex, could you imagine a case where you'd let your expert um, go talk with the other expert without adult supervision? You know, I think as much as attorneys don't like the idea, I can imagine a case, and I actually uh, just litigated a, an arbitration in the past year regarding a power plant. There were a lot of amounts at issue and a lot of different delays at issue, and one of the things we did was with respect to the outstanding contract balance and the other amounts that were at issue, we actually had our expert meet with the other side's expert without attorneys present to try to figure out if we could agree on at least, you know, amounts that were not in dispute. What is the outstanding contract balance? What is the amount of the agreed upon change orders? And it, it may surprise some practitioners, but I think it won't surprise that many that oftentimes the parties in these really complicated and drawn out disputes aren't actually able to paper what exactly the contract about the remaining contract balances or what exactly the amount of agreed upon change orders is two years out. And so one of the things that we have had our experts meet on are things like that areas where we can, we can agree upon we can reach a, a final number after the experts have sifted through all of the documentation and that helps to reduce what we're really fighting about in front of the arbitrators or in front of the finder of fact to the real issues at the heart of the dispute. Chris Sullivan from FDI Consulting, thank you very much for your uh, expertise today. Very interesting. Thanks, Bob. And Alex Dockery from Goulston Stores in Boston, thank you. I learned a lot. Thank you. You have been listening to Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the express written consent of the American Bar Association. For more information about construction law today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, Buzz Tarlow, jtarlow at lawmt.com. Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you for listening and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today.